Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prudence. From Essays, First Series, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Theme no poet gladly sung. Fair to old and foul to young, scorn not thou the love of parts and the articles of arts. Grandeur of the perfect sphere thanks the atoms that cohere. What right have I to write on prudence, whereof I have little, and that of the negative sort? My prudence consists in avoiding and going without not in the inventing of means and methods, not in adroit steering, not in gentle repairing. I have no skill to make money spend well, no genius in my economy, and whoever sees my garden discovers that I must have some other garden. Yet I love facts, and hate lubricity and people without perception. Then I have the same title to write on prudence that I have to write on poetry or holiness. We write with aspiration and antagonism, as well as from experience. We paint those qualities which we do not possess. The poet admires the man of energy and tactics, the merchant breeds his son for the church or the bar, and where a man is not vain and egotistic he shall find what he has not by his praise. Moreover, it would be hardly honest in me not to balance these fine lyric words of love and friendship with words of coarser sound, and whilst my debt to my senses is real and constant, not to own it in passing. Prudence is the virtue of the senses. It is the science of appearances. It is the outmost action of the inward life. It is God taking thought for oxen. It moves matter after the laws of matter. It is content to seek health of body by complying with physical conditions, and health of mind by the laws of the intellect. The world of the senses is a world of shows. It does not exist for itself, but has a symbolic character. And a true prudence or law of shows recognizes the co-presence of other laws, and knows that its own office is subaltern knows that it is surface, and not centre, where it works. Prudence is false when detached. It is legitimate when it is the natural history of the soul incarnate, when it unfolds the beauty of laws within the narrow scope of the senses. There are all degrees of proficiency in knowledge of the world. It is sufficient to our present purpose to indicate three one class lived to the utility of the symbol, esteeming health and wealth a final good. Another class live above this mark to the beauty of the symbol, as the poet and artist and the naturalist and man of science. A third class live above the beauty of the symbol to the beauty of the thing signified. These are wise men. The first class have common sense, the second taste, and the third spiritual perception. 
once in a long time a man traverses the whole scale and sees and enjoys the symbol solidly then also has a clear eye for its beauty and lastly whilst he pitches his tent on this sacred volcanic isle of nature does not offer to build houses and barns thereon reverencing the splendour of the god which he sees bursting through each chink and cranny the world is filled with the proverbs and acts and winkings of a base prudence which is a devotion to matter as if we possessed no other faculties than the palate the nose the touch the eye and ear a prudence which adores the rule of three which never subscribes which never gives which seldom lends and asks but one question of any project will it bake bread this is a disease like a thickening of the skin until the vital organs are destroyed but culture revealing the high origin of the apparent world and aiming at the perfection of the man as the end degrades everything else as health and bodily life into means it sees prudence not to be a several faculty but a name for wisdom and virtue conversing with the body and its wants cultivated men always feel and speak so as if a great fortune the achievement of a civil or social measure great personal influence a graceful and commanding address had their value as proofs of the energy of the spirit if a man lose his balance and immerse himself in any trades or pleasures for their own sake he may be a good wheel or pin but he is not a cultivated man the spurious prudence making the senses final is the god of sots and cowards and is the subject of all comedy it is nature's joke and therefore literature's the true prudence limits this sensualism by admitting the knowledge of an internal and real world this recognition once made the order of the world and the distribution of affairs and times being studied with the co-perception of their subordinate place will reward any degree of attention for our existence thus apparently attached in nature to the sun and the returning moon and the periods which they mark so susceptible to climate and to country so alive to social good and evil so fond of splendour and so tender to hunger and cold and debt reads all its primary lessons out of these books prudence does not go behind nature and ask whence it is it takes the laws of the world whereby man's being is conditioned as they are and keeps these laws that it may enjoy their proper good it respects space and time climate want sleep the law of polarity growth and death there revolve to give bound and period to his being on all sides the sun and moon the great formalists in the sky here lies stubborn matter and will not swerve from its chemical routine here is a planted globe pierced and belted with natural laws and fenced and distributed externally with civil partitions and properties which impose new restraints on the young inhabitant we eat of the bread which grows in the field we live by the air which blows around us and we are poisoned by the air that is too cold or too hot too dry or too wet time which shows us vacant indivisible and divine in its coming is slit and peddled into trifles and tatters a door is to be painted a lock to be repaired i want wood or oil or meal or salt 
the house smokes or i have a headache then the tax and an affair to be transacted with a man without heart or brains and the stinging recollection of an injurious or very awkward word these eat up the hours do what we can summer will have its flies if we walk in the woods we must feed mosquitoes if we go a-fishing we must expect a wet coat then climate is a great impediment to idle persons we often resolve to give up the care of the weather but we still regard the clouds and the rain we are instructed by these petty experiences which usurp the hours and years the hard soil and four months of snow make the inhabitant of the northern temperate zone wiser and abler than his fellow who enjoys the fixed smile of the tropics the islander may ramble all day at will at night he may sleep on a mat under the moon and wherever a wild date-tree grows nature has without a prayer even spread a table for his morning meal the northerner is perforce a householder he must brew bake salt and preserve his food and pile wood and coal but as it happens that not one stroke can labor lay to without some new acquaintance with nature and as nature is inexhaustibly significant the inhabitants of these climates have always excelled the southerner in force such is the value of these matters that a man who knows other things can never know too much of these let him have accurate perceptions let him if he have hands handle if eyes measure and discriminate let him accept and hive every fact of chemistry natural history and economics the more he has the less he is willing to spare any one time is always bringing the occasions that disclose their value some wisdom comes out of every natural and innocent action the domestic man who loves no music so well as his kitchen clock and the airs which the logs sing to him as they burn on the hearth has solaces which others never dream of the application of means to ends ensures victory and the songs of victory not less in a farm or a shop than in the tactics of party or of war the good husband finds method as efficient in the packing of firewood in a shed or in the harvesting of fruits in the cellar as in peninsular campaigns or the files of the department of state in the rainy day he builds a workbench or gets his toolbox set in the corner of the barn chamber and stored with nails gimlet pincers screwdriver and chisel herein he tastes an old joy of youth and childhood the cat-like love of garrets presses and corn-chambers and of the conveniences of long housekeeping his garden or his poultry-yard tells him many pleasant anecdotes one might find argument for optimism in the abundant flow of this saccharine element of pleasure in every suburb and extremity of the good world let a man keep the law any law and his way will be strewn with satisfactions there is more difference in the quality of our pleasures than in the amount on the other hand nature punishes any neglect of prudence if you think the senses final obey their law if you believe in the soul do not clutch at sensual sweetness before it is ripe on the slow tree of cause and effect it is vinegar to the eyes to deal with men of loose and imperfect perception dr johnson is reported to have said if the child says he looked out of this window when he looked out of that 
whip him. Our American character is marked by a more than average delight in accurate perception, which is shown by the currency of the byword, no mistake. But the discomfort of unpunctuality, of confusion of thought about facts, of inattention to the wants of to-morrow, is of no nation. The beautiful laws of time and space, once dislocated by our inaptitude, are holes and dens. If the hive be disturbed by rash and stupid hands, instead of honey it will yield us bees. Our words and actions, to be fair, must be timely. A gay and pleasant sound is the wetting of the scythe in the mornings of June. Yet what is more lonesome and sad than the sound of a whetstone or mower's rifle when it is too late in the season to make hay? Scatterbrained and afternoon men spoil much more than their own affair in spoiling the temper of those who deal with them. I have seen a criticism on some paintings of which I am reminded when I see the shiftless and unhappy men who are not true to their senses. The last Grand Duke of Weimar, a man of superior understanding, said, I have sometimes remarked in the presence of great works of art, and just now especially in Dresden, how much a certain property contributes to the effect which gives life to the figures, and to the life and irresistible truth. This property is the hitting, in all the figures we draw, the right centre of gravity. I mean the placing the figures firm upon their feet, making their hands grasp, and fastening the eyes on the spot where they should look. Even lifeless figures, as vessels and stools, let them be drawn ever so correctly, lose all effect so soon as they lack the resting upon their centre of gravity, and have a certain swimming and oscillating appearance. The Raphael in the Dresden Gallery, the only greatly affecting picture which I have seen, is the quietest and most passionless piece you can imagine, a couple of saints who worship the virgin and child. Nevertheless, it awakens a deeper impression than the contortions of ten crucified martyrs. For beside all the resistless beauty of form, it possesses in the highest degree the property of the perpendicularity of all the figures. This perpendicularity we demand of all the figures in this picture of life. Let them stand on their feet, and not float and swing. Let us know where to find them. Let them discriminate between what they remember and what they dreamed, call a spade a spade, give us facts, and honour their own senses with trust. But what man shall dare tax another with imprudence? Who is prudent? The men we call greatest are least in this kingdom. There is a certain fatal dislocation in our relation to nature, distorting our modes of living and making every law our enemy, which seems at last to have aroused all the wit and virtue in the world to ponder the question of reform. We must call the highest prudence to counsel, and ask why health and beauty and genius should now be the exception rather than the rule of human nature. We do not know the properties of plants and animals and the laws of nature through our sympathy with the same. But this remains the dream of poets. Poetry and prudence should be coincident. Poets should be lawgivers. That is, the boldest lyric inspiration should not chide and insult, but should announce and lead the civil code and the day's work. But now the two things seem irreconcilably parted. 
we have violated law upon law until we stand amidst ruins, and when by chance we espy a coincidence between reason and the phenomena, we are surprised. Beauty should be the dowry of every man and woman, as invariably as sensation. But it is rare. Health and sound organization should be universal. Genius should be the child of genius, and every child should be inspired. But now it is not to be predicted of any child, and nowhere is it pure. We call partial half-lights by courtesy genius. Talent which converts itself to money, talent which glitters to-day that it may dine and sleep well to-morrow, and society is officered by men of parts, as they are properly called, and not by divine men. These use their gifts to refine luxury, not to abolish it. Genius is always ascetic, and piety and love. Appetite shows to the finer souls as a disease, and they find beauty in rites and bounds that resist it. We have found out fine names to cover our sensuality with all, but no gifts can raise intemperance. The man of talent affects to call his transgressions of the laws of the senses trivial, and to count them nothing considered with his devotion to his art. His art never taught him lewdness, nor the love of wine, nor the wish to reap before he had sowed. His art is less for every deduction from his holiness, and less for every defect of common sense. On him who scorned the world, as he said, the scorned world wreaks its revenge. He that despiseth small things will perish by little and little. Goethe's Tasso is very likely to be a pretty fair historical portrait, and that is true tragedy. It does not seem to me so genuine grief when some tyrannous Richard III oppresses and slays a score of innocent persons, as when Antonio and Tasso, both apparently right, wrong each other. One living after the maxims of this world, and consistent and true to them, the other fired with all divine sentiments, yet grasping also at the pleasures of senses, without submitting to their law. That is a grief we all feel, a knot we cannot untie. Tasso's is no infrequent case in modern biography. A man of genius, of ardent temperament, reckless of physical laws, self-indulgent, becomes presently unfortunate, querulous, a discomfortable cousin, a thorn to himself and to others. The scholar shames us by his bifold life. Whilst something higher than prudence is active, he is admirable. When common sense is wanted, he is an encumbrance. Yesterday Caesar was not so great. Today the felon at the gallows' foot is not more miserable. Yesterday, radiant with the light of the world in which he lives, the first of men, and now oppressed by wants and by sickness, for which he must thank himself. He resembles the pitiful dwellers whom travellers describe as frequenting the bazaars of Constantinople, who skulk about all day, yellow, emaciated, ragged, sneaking, and at evening, when the bazaars are open, slink to the opium shop swallow their morsel, and become tranquil and glorified seers. And who has not seen the tragedy of imprudent genius struggling for years with paltry pecuniary difficulties, at last sinking, 
chilled, exhausted, and fruitless, like a giant slaughtered by pins. Is it not better that a man should accept the first pains and mortifications of this sort, which nature is not slack at sending him, as hints that he must expect no other good than the just fruit of his own labor and self-denial? Health, bread, climate, social position have their importance, and he will give them their due. Let him esteem nature a perpetual counsellor, and her perfections the exact measure of our deviations. Let him make the night night and the day day. Let him control the habit of expense. Let him see that as much wisdom may be expended on a private economy as on an empire, and as much wisdom may be drawn from it. The laws of the world are written out for him on every piece of money in his hand. There is nothing he will not be the better for knowing, were it only the wisdom of poor Richard, or the State Street prudence of buying by the acre to sell by the foot, or the thrift of the agriculturist, to stick a tree between whiles because it will grow whilst he sleeps, or the prudence which consists in husbanding little strokes of the tool, little portions of time, particles of stock, and small gains. The eye of prudence will never shut. Iron, if kept at the ironmongers, will rust. Beer, if not brewed in the right state of the atmosphere, will sour. Timber of ships will rot at sea, or if laid up high and dry, will strain, warp, and dry-rot. Money, if kept by us, yields no rent and is liable to loss. If invested, is liable to depreciation of the particular kind of stock. Strike, says the smith, the iron is white. Keep the rake, says the haymaker, as nigh the scythe as you can, and the cart as nigh the rake. Our Yankee trade is reputed to be very much on the extreme of this prudence. It takes bank-notes, good, bad, clean, ragged, and saves itself by the speed with which it passes them off. Iron cannot rust, nor beer sour, nor timber rot, nor calicoes go out of fashion, nor money stocks depreciate, in the few swift moments in which the Yankee suffers any one of them to remain in his possession. In skating over thin ice, our safety is in our speed. Let him learn a prudence of a higher strain. Let him learn that everything in nature, even motes and feathers, go by law and not by luck, and that what he sows he reaps. By diligence and self-command let him put the bread he eats at his own disposal, that he may not stand in bitter and false relations to other men, for the best good of wealth is freedom. Let him practice the minor virtues. How much of human life is lost in waiting, let him not make his fellow-creatures wait. How many words and promises are promises of conversation? Let his be words of fate. When he sees a folded and sealed scrap of paper float round the globe in a pine-ship, and come safe to the eye for which it was written, amidst a swarming population, let him likewise feel the admonition to integrate his being across all these distracting forces, and keep a slender human word among the storms, distances, and accidents that drive us hither and thither, and, by persistency, make the paltry force of one man reappear to redeem its pledge after months and years in the most distant climates. We must not try to write the laws of any one virtue looking at that only. Human nature loves no contradictions, but is symmetrical. 
the prudence which secures an outward well-being is not to be studied by one set of men whilst heroism and holiness are studied by another but they are reconcilable prudence concerns the present time persons property and existing forms but as every fact hath its roots in the soul and if the soul were changed would cease to be or would become some other thing the proper administration of outward things will always rest on a just apprehension of their cause and origin that is the good man will be the wise man and the single-hearted the politic man every violation of truth is not only a sort of suicide in the liar but is a stab at the health of human society on the most profitable lie the course of events presently lays a destructive tax while frankness invites frankness puts the parties on a convenient footing and makes their business a friendship trust men and they will be true to you treat them greatly and they will show themselves great though they make an exception in your favour to all their rules of trade so in regard to disagreeable and formidable things prudence does not consist in evasion or in flight but in courage he who wishes to walk in the most peaceful parts of life with any serenity must screw himself up to resolution let him front the object of his worst apprehension and his stoutness will commonly make his fear groundless the latin proverb says in battles the eye is first overcome entire self-possession may make a battle very little more dangerous to life than a match at foils or at football examples are cited by soldiers of men who have seen the cannon pointed and the fire given to it and who have stepped aside from the path of the ball the terrors of the storm are chiefly confined to the parlour and the cabin the drover the sailor buffets it all day and his health renews itself at as vigorous a pulse under the sleet as under the sun of june in the occurrence of unpleasant things among neighbours fear comes readily to heart and magnifies the consequence of the other party but it is a bad counsellor every man is actually weak and apparently strong to himself he seems weak to others formidable you are afraid of grim but Grimm also is afraid of you. You are solicitous of the good will of the meanest person, uneasy at his ill will, but the sturdiest offender of your peace and of the neighborhood, if you rip up his claims, is as thin and timid as any, and the peace of society is often kept because, as children say, one is afraid and the other dares not. Far off men swell, bully, and threaten. Bring them hand to hand, and they are a feeble folk. It is a proverb that courtesy costs nothing, but calculation might come to value love for its profit. Love is fabled to be blind, but kindness is necessary to perception. Love is not a hood, but an eye-water. If you mean a sectary or a hostile partisan, never recognize the dividing lines but meet on what common ground remains if only that the sun shines and the rain rains for both the area will widen very fast and ere you know it the boundary mountains on which the eye had fastened have melted into air if they set out to contend saint paul will lie and saint john will hate what low poor paltry hypocritical people an argument on religion will make of the pure and chosen souls 
they will shuffle and crow crook and hide feign to confess here only that they may brag and conquer there and not a thought has enriched either party and not an emotion of bravery modesty or hope so neither should you put yourself in a false position with your contemporaries by indulging a vein of hostility and bitterness though your views are in straight antagonism to theirs assume an identity of sentiment assume that you are saying precisely that which all think and in the flow of wit and love roll out your paradoxes in solid column with not the infirmity of a doubt so at least shall you get an adequate deliverance the natural motions of the soul are so much better than the voluntary ones that you will never do yourself justice in dispute the thought is not then taken hold of by the right handle does not show itself proportioned and in its true bearings but bears extorted horse and half witness but assume a consent and it shall presently be granted since really and underneath their external diversities all men are of one heart and mind wisdom will never let us stand with any man or men on an unfriendly footing we refuse sympathy and intimacy with people as if we waited for some better sympathy and intimacy to come but whence and when to-morrow will be like to-day life wastes itself whilst we are preparing to live our friends and fellow-workers die off from us scarcely can we say we see new men new women approaching us we are too old to regard fashion too old to expect patronage of any greater or more powerful let us suck the sweetness of those affections and consuetudes that grow near us these old shoes are easy to the feet undoubtedly we can easily pick faults in our company we can easily whisper names prouder and that tickle the fancy more every man's imagination hath its friends and life would be dearer with such companions but if you cannot have them on good mutual terms you cannot have them if not the deity but our ambition hues and shapes the new relations their virtue escapes as strawberries lose their flavour in garden beds thus truth frankness courage love humility and all the virtues range themselves on the side of prudence or the act of securing a present well-being i do not know if all matter will be found to be made of one element as oxygen or hydrogen at last but the world of manners and actions is wrought of one stuff and begin where we will we are pretty sure in a short space to be mumbling our ten commandments End of Prudence Heroism From Essays, First Series by Ralph Waldo Emerson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld Paradise is under the shadow of swords mohammed ruby wine is drunk by knaves sugar spends to fatten slaves rose and vine-leaf deck buffoons thunder-clouds are jove's festoons drooping oft in wreaths of dread lightning knotted round his head the hero is not fed on sweets daily his own heart he eats chambers of the great are jails and head-winds right for royal sails
In the elder English dramatists, and mainly in the plays of Beaumont and Fletcher, there is a constant recognition of gentility, as if a noble behavior were as easily marked in the society of their age as color is in our American population. When any Rodrigo, Pedro, or Valerio enters, though he be a stranger, the duke or governor exclaims, This is a gentleman, and proffers civilities without end. But all the rest are slag and refuse. In harmony with this delight in personal advantages, there is in their plays a certain heroic cast of character and dialogue, as in Bonduca, Sophocles, the mad lover, the double marriage wherein the speaker is so earnest and cordial and on such deep grounds of character that the dialogue on the slightest additional incident in the plot rises naturally into poetry among many texts take the following the roman martius has conquered athens all but the invincible spirits of sophocles the duke of athens and dorigen his wife the beauty of the latter inflames Martius, and he seeks to save her husband. But Sophocles will not ask his life, although assured that a word will save him, and the execution of both proceeds. Valerius, bid thy wife farewell. Sophocles, no, I will take no leave. My Dorigen, yonder, above, about Ariadne's crown, my spirit shall hover for thee. Pray thee, haste. Dorigen, stay, Sophocles, with this tie up my sights. Let not soft nature so transformed be, and lose her gentler sexed humanity to make me see my lord bleed. So tis well. Never one object underneath the sun will I behold before my Sophocles. Farewell. Now teach the Romans how to die. Martius, dost know what is to die? Sophocles, thou dost not, Martius, and therefore not what is to live. To die is to begin to live, it is to end an old, stale, weary work, and to commence a newer and a better. Tis to leave deceitful knaves for the society of gods and goodness. Thou thyself must part at last from all thy garlands, pleasures, triumphs, and prove thy fortitude what then twill do. But art not grieved nor vexed to leave thy life thus? Why should I grieve or vex for being sent to them I ever loved best? Now I'll kneel, but with my back toward thee. Tis the last duty this trunk can do the gods. Strike, strike, Valerius, or Mortius's heart will leap out of his mouth. This is a man, a woman. Kiss thy lord, and live with all the freedom you are wont. O oh, love, thou doubly hast afflicted me with virtue and with beauty. Treacherous heart, my hand shall cast thee quick into my urn, ere thou transgress this knot of piety. What ails my brother? Martius, oh, Martius, thou now hast found a way to conquer me. O oh, star of Rome, what gratitude can speak fit words to follow such a deed as this? This admirable duke, Valerius, with his disdain of fortune and of death, captive himself, has captivated me. And though my arm hath taken his body here, 
His soul hath subjugated Martius' soul. By Romulus he is all soul, I think. He hath no flesh, and spirit cannot be jived. Then we have vanquished nothing. He is free, and Martius walks now in captivity. I do not readily remember any poem, play, sermon, novel, or oration that our press vents in the last few years which goes to the same tune. We have a great many flutes and flageolet, but not often the sound of any fife. Yet Wordsworth's Laudamia and the Ode of Dion and some sonnets have a certain noble music, and Scott will sometimes draw a stroke like the portrait of Lord Evandale given by Balfour of Burley. Thomas Carlyle, with his natural taste for what is manly and daring in character, has suffered no heroic trait in his favorites to drop from his biographical and historical pictures. Earlier Robert Burns has given us a song or two. In the Harleian Messalanes there is an account of the Battle of Lutzen which deserves to be read, and Simon Ockley's History of the Saracens recounts the prodigies of individual valor with admiration all the more evident on the part of the narrator that he seems to think that his place in Christian Oxford requires of him some proper protestations of abhorrence. But if we explore the literature of heroism we shall quickly come to Plutarch, who is its doctor and historian. To him we owe the Brasidas, the Dion, the Epaminondas, the Scipio of old, and I must think we are more deeply indebted to him than to all the ancient writers. Each of his lives is a refutation to the despondency and cowardice of our religious and political theorists. A wild courage, a stoicism, not of the schools, but of the blood, shines in every anecdote, and has given that book its immense fame. We need books of this tart, cathartic virtue more than books of political science or of private economy. Life is a festival only to the wise. Seen from the nook and chimney-side of prudence, it wears a ragged and dangerous front. The violations of the laws of nature by our predecessors and our contemporaries are punished in us also. The disease and deformity around us certify the infraction of natural, intellectual, and moral laws, and often violation on violation to breed such compound misery. A locked jaw that bends a man's head back to his heels, hydrophobia that makes him bark at his wife and babies, insanity that makes him eat grass, war, plague, cholera, famine, indicate a certain ferocity in nature which, as it had its inlet by human crime, must have its outlet by human suffering. Unhappily, no man exists who is not in his own person become to some amount a stockholder in the sin, and so made himself liable to a share in the expiation. Our culture, therefore, must not omit the arming of the man. Let him hear in season that he is born into the state of war, and that the commonwealth and his own well-being require that he should not go dancing in the weeds of peace, but warned, self-collected, and neither defying nor dreading the thunder, let him take both reputation and life in his hand, and with perfect urbanity dare the gibbet and the mob by the absolute truth of his speech and the rectitude of his behaviour. 
Towards all this external evil the man within the breast assumes a warlike attitude, and affirms his ability to cope single-handed with the infinite army of enemies. To this military attitude of the soul we give the name of heroism. Its rudest form is the contempt for safety and ease which makes the attractiveness of war. It is a self-trust which slights the restraints of prudence, in the plenitude of its energy and power to repair the harms it may suffer. The hero is a mind of such balance that no disturbances can shake his will, but pleasantly, and as it were merrily, he advances to his own music, alike in frightful alarms and in the tipsy mirth of universal dissoluteness. There is something not philosophical in heroism, there is something not holy in it. It seems not to know that other souls are of one texture with it. It has pride, it is the extreme of individual nature. Nevertheless we must profoundly revere it. There is something in great actions which does not allow us to go behind them. Heroism feels and never reasons, and therefore is always right and although a different breeding, different religion, and greater intellectual activity would have modified or even reversed the particular action, yet for the hero that thing he does is the highest deed, and is not open to the censure of philosophers or divines. It is the avowal of the unschooled man that he finds a quality in him that is negligent of expense, of health, of life, of danger, of hatred, of reproach, and knows that his will is higher and more excellent than all actual and all possible antagonists. Heroism works in contradiction to the voice of mankind, and in contradiction for a time to the voice of the great and good. Heroism is an obedience to a sacred impulse of an individual's character. Now to no other man can its wisdom appear as it does to him for every man must be supposed to see a little farther on his own proper path than any one else. Therefore just and wise men take umbrage at his act, until after some little time be passed. Then they see it to be in unison with their acts. All prudent men see that the action is clean and contrary to a sensual prosperity. For every heroic act measures itself by its contempt of some external good but it finds its own success at last, and then the prudent also extol. Self-trust is the essence of heroism. It is the state of the soul at war, and its ultimate objects are the last defiance of falsehood and wrong, and the power to bear all that can be inflicted by evil agents. It speaks the truth, and it is just, generous, hospitable, temperate, scornful of petty calculations, and scornful of being scorned. It persists, it is of an undaunted boldness, and of a fortitude not to be wearied out. Its jest is the littleness of common life. That false prudence which dotes on health and wealth is the butts and merriment of heroism. Heroism, like Plotinus, is almost ashamed of its body. What shall it say, then, to the sugar-plums and cats-cradles, to the toilet, compliments, quarrels, cards, and custard, which rack the wit of all society? What joys has kind nature provided for us dear creatures? There seems to be no interval between greatness and meanness. 
when the spirit is not master of the world then it is its dupe yet the little man takes the great hoax so innocently works in it so headlong and believing is born red and dies gray arranging his toilet attending on his own health laying traps for sweet food and strong wine setting his heart on a horse or a rifle made happy with little gossip or little praise that the great soul cannot choose but laugh at such earnest nonsense indeed these humble considerations make me out of love with greatness what a disgrace is it to me to take note how many pairs of silk stockings thou hast namely these and those that were the peach-coloured ones or to bear the inventory of thy shirts as one for superfluity and one other for use citizens thinking after the laws of arithmetic consider the inconvenience of receiving strangers at their fireside reckon narrowly the loss of time and the unusual display the soul of a better quality thrusts back the unseasonable economy into the vaults of life and says i will obey the god and the sacrifice and the fire he will provide Ibn Hankel, the Arabian geographer, describes a heroic extreme in the hospitality of Sogod in Bulgaria. When I was in Sogod I saw a great building, like a palace, the gates of which were open and fixed back to the wall with large nails. I asked the reason, and was told that the house had not been shut night or day for a hundred years. Strangers may present themselves at any hour and in whatever number the master has amply provided for the reception of the men and their animals, and is never happier than when they tarry for some time. Nothing of the kind have I seen in any other country. The magnanimous know very well that they who give time, or money, or shelter to the stranger, so it be done for love and not for ostentation, do, as it were, put God under obligation to them, so perfect are the compensations of the universe in some way the time they seem to lose is redeemed and the pains they seem to take remunerate themselves these men fan the flame of human love and raise the standard of civil virtue among mankind but hospitality must be for service and not for show or it pulls down the host the brave soul rates itself too high to value itself by the splendour of its table and draperies it gives what it hath and all it hath but its own majesty can lend a better grace to bannocks and fair water than belong to city feasts the temperance of the hero proceeds from the same wish to do no dishonour to the worthiness he has but he loves it for its elegancy not for its austerity it seems not worth his while to be solemn and denounce with bitterness flesh-eating or wine-drinking the use of tobacco or opium or tea or silk or gold a great man scarcely knows how he dines how he dresses but without railing or precision his living is natural and poetic john eliot the indian apostle drank water and said of wine it is a noble generous liquor and we shall be humbly thankful for it but as i remember water was made before it better still is the temperance of king david who poured out on the ground under the lord the water which three of his warriors had brought him to drink at the peril of their lives 
It is told of Brutus that when he fell on his sword after the battle of Philippi, he quoted a line of Euripides, O oh, virtue, I have followed thee through life, and I find thee at last but a shade. I doubt not the hero is slandered by this report. The heroic soul does not sell its justice and its nobleness. It does not ask to dine nicely and to sleep warm. The essence of greatness is the perception that virtue is enough. Poverty is its ornament. It does not need plenty, and can very well abide its loss. But that which takes my fancy most in the heroic class is the good humor and hilarity they exhibit. It is a height to which common duty can very well attain to suffer and to dare with solemnity. But these rare souls set opinion, success, and life at so cheap a rate that they may not soothe their enemies by petitions or the show of sorrow, but wear their own habitual greatness. Scipio, charged with peculation, refuses to do himself so great a disgrace as to wait for justification, though he had the scroll of his accounts in his hands, but tears it to pieces before the tribunes. Socrates' condemnation of himself to be maintained in all honour in the Prytanium during his life, and Sir Thomas More's playfulness at the scaffold are of the same strain. In Beaumont and Fletcher's Sea Voyage, Juletta tells the stout captain and his company, Why, slaves, tis in our power to hang ye! Very likely, tis in our powers then to be hanged and scorn ye! These replies are sound and whole. Sport is the bloom and glow of a perfect health. The great will not condescend to take anything seriously. All must be as gay as the song of a canary, though it were the building of cities, or the eradication of old and foolish churches and nations, which have cumbered the earth long thousands of years. Simple hearts put all the history and customs of this world behind them, and play their own game in innocent defiance of the blue laws of the world, and such would appear, could we see the human race assembled in vision, like little children frolicking together, though to the eyes of mankind at large they were a stately and solemn garb of works and influences. The interest these fine stories have for us, the power of a romance over the boy who grasps the forbidden book under his bench at school, our delight in the hero, is the main fact to our purpose. All these great and transcendent properties are ours. If we dilate in beholding the Greek energy, the Roman pride, it is that we are already domesticating the same sentiment. Let us find room for this great guest in our small houses. The first step of worthiness will be to disabuse us of our superstitious associations with places and times, with number and size. Why should these words, Athenian, Roman, Asia, and England, so tingle in the ear? Where the heart is, there the muses, there the gods sojourn, and not in any geography of fame. Massachusetts, Connecticut River, and Boston Bay you think paltry places, and the ear loves names of foreign and classic topography. But here we are, and if we tarry a little we may come to learn that here is best. See to it only that thyself is here, and art and nature, hope and fate, friends, angels, and the supreme being shall not be absent from the chamber where thou sittest. 
Epaminondas, brave and affectionate, does not seem to us to need Olympus to die upon, nor the Syrian sunshine. He lives very well where he is. The jerseys are handsome ground enough for Washington to tread, and London streets for the feet of Milton. A great man makes his climate genial in the imagination of men, and its air the beloved element of all delicate spirits. That country is the fairest which is inhabited by the noblest minds. The pictures which fill the imagination in reading the actions of Pericles, Xenophon, Columbus, Bayard, Sidney, Hampton, teach us how needlessly mean our life is that we by the depth of our living shall deck it with more than regal or national splendour and act on principles that should interest man and nature in the length of our days we have seen or heard of many extraordinary young men who never ripened or whose performance in actual life was not extraordinary when we see their air and mien when we hear them speak of society of books of religion we admire their superiority they seem to throw contempt on our entire polity and social state theirs is the tone of a youthful giant who is sent to work revolutions but they enter an active profession and the forming colossus shrinks to the common size of man the magic they used was the ideal tendencies which always make the actual ridiculous but the tough world had its revenge the moment they put their horses of the sun to plough in its furrow they found no example and no companion and their heart fainted what then the lesson they gave in their first aspirations is yet true and a better valour and a purer truth shall one day organise their belief or why should a woman liken herself to any historical women and think because sappho or savine or de stael or the cloistered souls who have had genius and cultivation do not satisfy the imagination and the serene tamis none can certainly not she she has a new and unattempted problem to solve perchance that of the happiest nature that ever bloomed let the maiden with erect soul walk serenely on her way accept the hint of each new experience search in turn all the objects that solicit her eye that she may learn the power and the charm of her new-born being which is the kindling of a new dawn in the recesses of space the fair girl who repels interference by a decided and proud choice of influences so careless of pleasing so wilful and lofty inspires every beholder with something of her own nobleness the silent heart encourages her oh friend never strike sail to a fear come into port greatly or sail with god the seas not in vain you live for every passing eye is cheered and refined by the vision the characteristic of heroism is its persistency all men have wandering impulses fits and starts of generosity but when you have chosen your part abide by it and do not weakly try to reconcile yourself with the world the heroic cannot be the common nor the common the heroic yet we have the weakness to expect the sympathy of people in those actions whose excellent is that they outrun sympathy and appeal to a tardy justice if you would serve your brother because it is fit for you to serve him do not take back your words when you find that prudent people do not commend you 
adhere to your own act and congratulate yourself if you have done something strange and extravagant and broken the monotony of a decorous age it was a high counsel that i once heard given to a young person always do what you are afraid to do a simple manly character need never make an apology but should regard its past action with the calmness of phocion when he admitted that the event of the battle was happy yet did not regret his dissuasion from the battle there is no weakness or exposure for which we cannot find consolation in the thought this is part of my constitution part of my relation and office to my fellow-creature has nature covenanted with me that i should never appear to disadvantage never make a ridiculous figure let us be generous of our dignity as well as of our money greatness once and for ever has done with opinion we tell our charities not because we wish to be praised for them not because we think they have great merit but for our justification it is a capital blunder as you discover when another man recites his charities to speak the truth even with some austerity to live with some rigour of temperance or some extremes of generosity seems to be an asceticism which common good-nature would appoint to those who are at ease and in plenty in sign that they feel a brotherhood with the great multitude of suffering men and not only need we breathe and exercise the soul by assuming the penalties of abstinence of debt of solitude of unpopularity but it behooves the wise man to look with a bold eye into those rarer dangers which sometimes invade men and to familiarize himself with disgusting forms of disease with sounds of execration and the vision of violent death times of heroism are generally times of terror but the day never shines in which this element may not work the circumstances of man we say are historically somewhat better in this country and that this hour than perhaps ever before more freedom exists for culture he will not now run against an axe at the first step out of the beaten track of opinion but whoso is heroic will always find crises to try his edge human virtue demands her champions and martyrs and the trial of persecution always proceeds it is but the other day that the brave lovejoy gave his breast to the bullets of a mob for the rights of free speech and opinion and died when it was better not to live i see not any road of perfect peace which a man can walk but after the counsel of his own bosom let him quit too much association let him go home much and establish himself in those courses he approves the unremitting retention of simple and high sentiments in obscure duties is hardening the character to that temper which will work with honour if need be in the tumult or on the scaffold whatever outrages have happened to men may befall a man again and very easily in a republic if there appear any signs of a decay of religion coarse slander fire tar and feathers and the gibbet the youth may freely bring home to his mind and with what sweetness of temper he can and inquire how fast he can fix his sense of duty braving such penalties whenever it may please the next newspaper and a sufficient number of his neighbours to pronounce his opinions incendiary 
it may calm the apprehension of calamity in the most susceptible heart to see how quick a bound nature has set to the utmost infliction of malice we rapidly approach a brink over which no enemy can follow us let them rave thou art quiet in thy grave in the gloom of our ignorance of what shall be in the hour when we are deaf to the higher voices who does not envy those who have seen safely to an end their manful endeavour who that sees the meanness of our politics but only congratulates washington that he is long already wrapped in his shroud and forever safe that he has laid sweet in his grave the hope of humanity not yet subjugated in him who does not sometimes envy the good and brave who are no more to suffer from the tumults of the natural world and await with curious complacency the speedy term of his own conversation with finite nature and yet the love that will be annihilated sooner than treacherous has already made death impossible and affirms itself no mortal but a native of the deeps of absolute and inextinguishable being End of heroism Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.